Today's episode is brought to you by Curve, a card and digital wallet service. You'll be hearing more about Curve later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Really happy uh, to welcome Katie Stockton, founder of Fairlead Strategies, as well as portfolio manager of the TAC ETF. Uh, Katie, great to have you here. Good to be with you, Jack. Katie, I've done many interviews on Forward Guidance, and I'm embarrassed to say it, not one of them has been about technical analysis, looking at the charts, seeing where the patterns are. That is your expertise, and uh, I really like your your framework. Um, yeah, so let's, let's start out. We're recording the morning of December 16th, uh, where we're seeing a lot more volatility after the Fed FOMC meeting. Broadly, and you know, you you gave a, a bunch of charts which we can go through uh, on screen. Yeah, broadly, what is your appetite or not appetite, but what what is your outlook on let's say just generally stocks like the S and P five hundred? Uh, and mm-hmm. then yeah, please go into to your methodology about you know because I think a lot of people may be familiar with oh it's above its moving average so it's a buy, it's below its moving average so it's a sell, it's overbought, it's oversold. But I feel like you really have to be an expert to sort of use these right, in the right way, and that's why I'm I'm glad to have you here. So yeah, what's your what's your like outlook on the S and P five hundred? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I'm glad to be your first technician. Um, I think it's important, obviously, as a discipline and that it's really like the ultimate complementary discipline in terms of technical analysis, you know, being, I guess, uh, uh, I guess, associated with also macro analysis and fundamental analysis. I think taken together, that's where you get the most powerful views and takeaways. Um, So I, I think it's a great thing to have on your radar and uh, this year, it's been all about risk management, right? And the charts can certainly help us do that. And uh, for, for the S&P 500, it's been downtrending. And we've been respecting that and, uh, you know, looking at the series of lower highs and lower lows. And we get a little bit caught up in some of the short-term action just because it's, the, it's our day job. Um, but I, it really doesn't take a super high level of expertise to be able to leverage some of the tools that we also use. Um, you know, we, we are able to be spread somewhat thinly in terms of the number of securities that we can have on our radar because technical analysis by its nature really is only focused on price. And because of that, the capacity to look at a lot of, uh, you know, sort of markets is really uh, quite great. And, and now, of course, we have software and tools available to us that make it even easier. Uh, you know, we can scroll through the entire S&P 500. And um, doing that scroll, uh, you'll see a lot of downtrends. You'll see a lot, a lot of breakdowns unfolding this week, including Apple, which, of course, is the biggest name or the biggest weighting in the S&P 500. So we have... A market that's, uh, you know, really challenged. It's a cyclical bear, in our opinion, not a secular one, at least not as of yet. Um, But it's the first real bear market that we've had, arguably, since 2008. Um, And there are some comparisons to 2008 that are still pretty uncomfortable in terms of like a market analog. And we're not really big on analogs, except when they hold so closely as this one has done. And it tells us that we could still be in store for a pretty good amount of volatility. So we look at uh, the volatility index or VIX uh, as a read of market sentiment. Sentiment's also very important to us in our process. And when the VIX is low, um, that would indicate perhaps some complacency is out there or greed. And that tends to be associated with rallies in the S&P 500. So it's sort of like an inverse correlation there. 
And so when we see the VIX show indications of bottoming, that is concerning to us. And that's what we've noticed over the past week and a half or so, that the VIX started to see downside momentum alleviate and um, the S&P 500 saw short-term momentum alleviate. And taken together, now that we've had this uh, negative reaction from the FOMC announcement, uh, we're seeing those breakdowns and the likes of Apple. And, and these just prevent or present further challenges for the equity market as we come into a new year. Uh, we do have December is characterized by positive seasonal influences, but they might not really manifest themselves as much this year, be, given the fact that it's a bear market cycle, but rather perhaps they would prevent meaningful downside from here between now and year end, of which we'd expect the market to be kind of released on the downside um, in January once we get into the new year. So we'll see how it unfolds, but we do think risk is heightened here. Um, and we focus on levels, support levels as a gauge of, of downside potential. And at this stage, next support for the S&P 500 is, is very close to 3,500. Okay, yeah. And so having followed your work for years, I know that like many successful investors, you recognize that it's good to be a bull because bulls win over the long term. So you don't like to be bearish. So when you say, <laughs> hey, risk is elevated... I, I I take that you know more seriously than someone who's like always bearish who says they're bearish because they're always bearish. Um, <laughs> yeah. So when you say su- okay, so support, yeah, what are support and resistance? And you, you say support is for S and P five hundred at thirty five hundred. What what does that mean? It's now at thirty eight hundred or something. Yeah. So support and resistance. It's really like one of the most important concepts of technical analysis, and that we're looking for areas of potential buying pressure, i.e. support, or selling pressure, i.e. resistance. And there's a lot of ways to identify that. And I think this is where having experience looking at charts really comes in handy and and it makes you better at identifying support and resistance levels that might hold importance. Their design is not to be ultra predictive, but to help you manage risk, to help you discern like a risk reward takeaway from any given setup. And we always have these levels on our radar, but then we also have on our radar indicators, technical indicators, which are mathematically based tools to measure price action in different ways. We have those in mind as well when we're identifying these key levels. So 3,500 or thereabouts is a key level based on something called a Fibonacci retracement. Fibonacci sequence is something that does appear not just in the markets, but in nature. It's um, a sort of a mathematical concept. And uh, this, this retracement is just a 50% retracement, which is still within the, the realm of that Fibonacci sequence. So it's a 50% retracement of the uptrend from the COVID corrective low to the high that preceded this bear market cycle. And that 50% retracement would be sort of a natural area for buyers to step in if indeed were to see a market shift from the bear market cycle into something that's more bullish or the secular bull trend were to resume. We suspect that it's actually in jeopardy of breaking, by the way, our indicator setup. So while it is our next gauge of downside risk, the indicators are pointing lower across the board such that we think it might be vulnerable of breaking. So we don't have a whole lot of confidence that that level holds, but it would be a very natural place to see some buyers step in at least temporarily and give us some kind of relief rally perhaps from there again, as we saw uh, somewhat recently off of the October low. So we look for these levels that sometimes are based on retracements, sometimes they're based on peaks and troughs that have been established before and were sort of proven areas of selling or buying pressure 
We also have ways to look at moving averages. So moving averages of price, like the 200-day moving average is one that you've probably heard about and uh, heard us talk about. And it's it's really what we feel is the most widely followed moving average and gauge of the long-term trend. And because it has so many eyes on it, I think it's probably somewhat self-fulfilling even as support and resistance. So there's a lot of ways to identify it. And the better you get at that, I think the better positioned you are to manage risk. Right. Yeah. So even if something has no fundamental uh, uh, use, if everyone believes it, it can be true. And you know, I'll give an example. And I don't know if this works, but I before the FOMC meeting, I noticed that the actual Wednesday of, of when Jay Powell spoke, S&P went up, uh, you know, you have less than 100 basis points, but he still had a pretty good rally overall. Whereas the real like sort of bloodshed was the day after FOMC. And that's what happened on Thursday, yesterday, again. So it's again, there's no fundamental rule of economics that says that, but it's just maybe, you know, the algorithms are noticing this and they're pricing this in too. Um, yeah, so, 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 so when you said the re- retracement, I think the low of S&P was roughly 2,200 and the high roughly 4,800. So you're saying in the middle is 3,500 or 3,600. And that's where you see the long-term support but you don't even have confidence that that will hold. That's just one that's of the right. And that, there's interest. actually even a more important level around 3,200 that we feel a little bit more confident that that's a key support level that could capture a major low. And again, that's derived from the Fibonacci sequence. To your point on uh, sort of the initial positive reaction from Jerome Powell's comments, it's super common to see some kind of knee-jerk move intraday. Um, so we we always caution against trying to get too cute around <laughs> these types of, of macro moments, if you will, uh, because they can be really difficult to trade and to navigate uh, short term. And so rather we just adhere to our indicators, which many of which are really designed to reduce the noise associated with things like that, those types of events, and isolate the noise from actual meaningful shifts. And and one of those indicators is called the MACD or Moving Average Convergence Divergence Indicator. It's, It's probably, I would guess, maybe the most, if not one of the most that sort of common tools and popular tools that technicians use. And it's trend following in nature. And so these MACDs had been pointing higher on the daily charts for several weeks and now have have rolled over since then. So, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we're respecting that shift on a short term basis and then also having that that in mind within the context of what those same MACDs are looking like on the weeklies and on the monthlies to have that longer term context. So I want to ask you about the MACDs, uh, which I know is the the indicator that you put perhaps the the most uh, uh, regard for in terms of it's kind of your your number one indicator. But first, I want to ask you: Do you view indicators more powerful as when you, they all say the same thing? Like, if do you view each indicator has you know? A, uh, if this indicator is a bullish indicator, it's a 55% chance that it's right. But then when you add up all those probabilities, if, if eight indicators that have a 55% of being right, uh, you know, the, the, the stars really do align if all, all indicators say the same thing. So do you sort of, uh, you know, if one indicator is super bullish, but another is super bearish, uh, is, it, is it kind of like a foggy market? But if they're all saying one thing, you say, hmm, uh, my, my view is more confident here. Yeah, and and you bring up sort of a good point in your question, probably without even realizing it, in that 
it's all about how you combine indicators that I think either you're successful um, in in terms of your takeaway or, or otherwise, because it, in different environments, you would actually weight different indicators in different ways. And that's the hard part. And it's it's even harder to do that and do it systematically because I think that's also where the value is. And this is where it takes a little bit more time and commitment from folks that are doing it themselves, because you need to come back to the same tools, whatever those tools are. I don't think there's like one amazing tool that everybody needs to use. I think it's really very personal um, and specific to strategies and time horizons and things of that nature, but it's in how you're combining the indicators. The reason they'll never like all say the same thing um, is because they're measuring different things. So an example would be uh, here. Let me let me frame this is that we have uh, what we consider to be like three categories of indicators, relative strength, which would be looking primarily at ratios. Uh, that's to understand if something's outperforming, underperforming. Uh, we also look at momentum or trend following gauges that includes that MACD indicator. And then we have overbought oversold measures. So as an example, an overbought oversold measure would be flashing a buy signal, an oversold buy signal, almost always when momentum is not yet positive, right? So, so they're kind of counter to each other at times. But when taken together over multiple timeframes and done so systematically, you can get some real value out of that. I'll give an example would be, you know, you have a stock that's in a long-term uptrend and has the support of the monthly MACD indicator pointing higher. And then within that context, you have a stochastic oscillator, which is an overbought over sold indicator that yields an oversold reading and you get this upturn on improved short-term momentum, well, that can be a really powerful setup in a bull market, uh, sort of an oversold buy signal, if you will, within a long-term uptrend. So a corrective phase that gives way to an oversold buy signal. So it's in how you combine them in that sense. You're combining not, not just the different categories of indicators, but also the different time horizons. That's where it can be especially powerful. So it wouldn't be like, oh, everything's flashing a buy right now, ever, really, at least um, in terms of the things that we're using. Uh, but there are certainly within certain environments, always like higher probability or lower probability setups. What we try to um, think about when we're reviewing charts from a bottom up perspective, meaning we'll take a sector and we'll pick it apart just from the individual stock perspective. We're looking for what we call themes. And these themes are really combinations typically of the various indicators, perhaps also, um, you know, prevailing trends or breakouts and breakdowns versus resistance or versus support. And it's those themes that we can have some conviction in in any given environment. But a theme in a trading range environment is going to be different than a theme in a trending environment. So part of the art of technical analysis is in determining which kind of environment you're in and, um, and therein sort of weighting the indicators appropriately. Right. So they almost never align perfectly because there's some sort of natural tension because if a, if a stock has uh, you know fallen 12 days in a row, the momentum says this, this stock is trading horribly. I mean, it's clearly going to go down more, whereas the overbought oversold will say this is oversold. So it's a, there's an inherent tension between if a stock goes down on Monday, uh, mean reversion would say it's going to go up on Tuesday, whereas trend following would say it's going to continue to go down on Tuesday. So you you can't uh, you you can't you can't have it both ways. So so my question is, 
is there a you know and i've kind of noticed this i want to propose a theory and i'm you know interested to see if you think uh, it's partially true or or not not true um is that on a longer term basis things are trend following so if the s&p 500 is below its 200 day moving average like it's it's in a bear market uh it, it might not do that well whereas on the intraday thing and you know i, I use a very basic thing like um uh, RSI relative strength indicator you use you know much more complicated uh, uh measures uh that that are on the short term of saying hey tesla has gone down 12 days in a row it, you know m- maybe the short the inter- uh, the bears the, everyone who wanted to sold has already sold you you might be due for a reversal um so yeah would i be right about uh that number one that tension but also the fact that uh the way to do technical analysis right is sort of long term or medium term trend following and short-term uh, mean reversion? Yeah, I, I think I, I understand the point. Um, and I, I do think it, the way I would frame that is to say that you need to know if you're counter-trending something or if you're following a trend. And it does depend on what time horizon you have on your radar. And um, what I always do, I start longer term. For me, longer term is using a monthly bar. And then I drill into intermediate term and short term using weekly and daily bar charts. And in doing so, you can understand, one, what that prevailing long-term trend is. And then you know if you're seeing a, a sort of a reverse trend on a shorter term uh, time horizon, you know that you're working with a counter trend move. And you also know that a counter trend move tends to be more difficult to trade or capture. It tends to be short-lived, of course, relative to a long-term trend. Um, and and yet it can be very powerful, right? So it would just lead you to sort of respect the indicators in a different way with that acknowledgement that you're doing something that's counter trend. Um, and people love counter trend trading, uh, but it is lower probability than uh, primary, like following the primary trends across time frames. So if you're in a stock that's trending higher uh, long term, but then also has the support of positive intermediate and short term momentum. That is really, to me, the, the best of the best, right? You want to have that momentum. The hard part with that kind of setup is that you always feel like you're chasing, like you, you don't feel like you get a, a good entry point ever. But um, and people are, are somewhat averse to buying stocks into strength. So it's just often the right thing to do because you want to go where the momentum is and you want to stay on the right side, right side of the prevailing long term trend. So so I I see the point. I think it's yeah, there are points at which that oversold reading within an uptrend, that's going to be your sort of um, great entry point. But in reality, it's it's where you have the momentum. That's where the most power is. Mm. So. What leads you to say that we are in a cyclical bear market? Is it the fact that uh, the S and P five hundred like fails to break meaningfully above the, the two hundred day meaning aver- moving average? And would that mean that once it reached the two hundred day moving average, uh, it's a better time to be bearish than when it's 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 way below? Um, and I also, maybe, how high would the S and P five hundred have to get for you to say, hey, you know what? Maybe the bear market's over. Yeah, and it's funny because it's it's really more than just a level, and it's certainly more than than the 200-day moving average. I do think that as much as we all look at that as sort of a prevailing gauge of the long-term trend, it's not always as good um, as a read on resistance as it has been recently because we had, for the S&P 500 index, it was wild. I mean, it, it came right up into that 200-day moving average 
after the summertime relief rally and like pivoted on a dime. Uh, it's so rare to see something that precise. If you think about a resistance level or a support level, with all of the varied market participants out there, they're, they're more likely cushions, not precise points. But just in this example, it happened to be very precise. Um, so we don't look at the 200-day with precision in that way, but to say, okay, well, there, there's a loose area of resistance around uh, 4,100, you know, 4,050, uh, based on that that 200-day, but also based on another one of our models. And uh, the charts show a shaded area, and that shaded area is called the cloud model. Uh, it has a Japanese name. It's called Ichimoku. Uh, we look at it for the long-term trend on uh, the weekly chart and for like the secular trend on the monthly chart. And the daily chart would be more of like a short-term reference for support and resistance. So uh, on the weekly chart right now, the S&P 500, there is resistance based on the daily cloud. So it's actually below the daily, I'm sorry, below the weekly cloud which is roughly 4,100. Um, and that weekly cloud is still pointing lower. So that's one of our prevailing gauges of the long-term trend, not just that 200-day moving average. So it's one of our kind of qualifiers. Um, so cyc cyclical bear defined by that weekly cloud, uh, but within the secular bull defined by, and you guessed it, the, the monthly cloud, right? So we're taking um, a step farther back, looking at that monthly cloud, which has been trending higher since the 2009 low was established. And the, the catch is that there's no guarantee that that secular trend holds. We unfortunately have seen a couple of pretty high profile stocks, including Amazon and Salesforce, take out that monthly cloud-based support. So those two are, are not setting a great example for a market, and those are, are certainly heavyweights and influencers on, on market sentiment. So we can't be fully convinced ever, but rather just do our best to stay on the right side of the prevailing trends over different timeframes. So now we know we've, we're working with the downtrend, um, those lower highs, lower lows. Uh, where would that start to look like it's maturing? Um, it comes not just from a level, it wouldn't just be like a breakout that we'd wait for, uh, but rather some kind of process. And that process is, is after a bear market cycle, somewhat prolonged typically, like after a correction, you can get a V bottom and it just, you know, runs away from us, right? But not after a bear market. Typically, we need to see some bottoming. And by bottoming, I mean like a support discovery process where it, it will come down. This is, say, the S&P 500. Let's say it comes down to 3,200 and that becomes a major support level. You see buyers really step in there. It's actually a pretty widely followed level. And so we see buyers step in. Well, it would be on that first retest, meaning like after the relief rally and the pullback, uh, that pullback would start to show some positive divergences in our indicators. So we want to see positive divergences, meaning higher lows and things like the MACDs, maybe on the weekly chart, where uh, price is still going lower. So we, we want to see that kind of improvement almost like behind the scenes in our indicators as that downtrend is, is trying to sort of mature and culminate into a basing phase. We want to see a little bit more out of the indicators. We want to see more time, quite frankly, just based on historical bear market cycles. It, it usually takes months for that base to be really established. So we think this time should probably be no different especially to the extent that the macro front is not 
uh, you know, near term in the near term and improving or, or fundamental front as well. So, so we kind of wait for the market to turn and then we would expect to see some kind of breakout that would give us confidence. So if we see the S&P 500 get right back above its 200 day moving average, you know, in the next couple of weeks, that wouldn't um, sway us in terms of, you know, saying, okay, well, this is it. We're done going down. We'd need to see a bit more out of the indicators. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying today's show. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Curve, a payment service that gives you power over your finances. The way it works is that Curve is an extra layer on top of your credit and debit cards that gives you additional cash back on the rewards that you're already earning. Curve Card has no foreign transaction fees and you can choose to earn your rewards in crypto. You don't have to, but you have the option. CurveCard also has a feature called Go Back in Time, where you can retroactively change the card used to buy an item after you made the purchase, up to 30 days after, actually. A key concept in finance is optionality. When you have the option to do something, but you don't have to do something, this can be very valuable in finance as well as life. And optionality is exactly what Curve gives you to do with your wallet. So check out Curve. Go to fgpodcast.link forward slash Curve to get $20 once you've downloaded the app and made your first transaction. CurveCard is powered by Hatchbank. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's get back to the interview. Okay, uh, thank you. So now let's go on to your favorite indicator, the MACD, moving average convergence diversion. Uh, why do you like it so much? What does it indicate as well as just fundamentally, what are the constituents? Yeah, I mean, so so it's measuring or it's based on exponential moving averages of price. So it takes two of these and then it takes the spread uh, between those two moving averages. And that becomes kind of the, the data that it um, spits back to you. And it's usually placed in a different window from price, like you see on our daily chart. And then we have what we call a signal line. And it's basically a smoothed version of the same. So it's a, a nine period smoothed. EMA of that data line. And this the signal line is there to uh, allow for crossovers. And it's in those crossovers that we actually have signals that we call buy and sell signals. So the crossovers in the MACD, what I love about it is it's like it's black and white. I mean, it's either on a buy signal or a sell signal based on the relationship between that data line and the smoothed version of it. So, and this, by smoothing it and also by using moving averages as the basis of the indicator to begin with, you're basically eliminating noise, right? You're smoothing out the prevailing trend over that time frame that you're identifying. Um, so on a daily chart, we consider that to be short-term momentum. Uh, we have that binary takeaway, buy or sell signal. There's certainly a lot of nuances to it as well. As an example, it would be if, it, if a MACD is on a buy signal and above zero, well, that we call positive momentum. If it's on a buy signal, but it's below zero, we call that improving momentum. So there's certainly uh, nuances to it, uh, but those crossovers can be really, really valuable and, and more valuable than waiting for, say, a 50-day moving average to cross over the 200-day moving average. I know that's on something that's widely publicized when that happens, but it's a, a very lagging indication. And, and the MACDs will be more sensitive based on their standard parameters to any kind of shifts that are underway. And if you're a long-term investor and you want to eliminate noise, then we'll use the monthly MACD. If you're more short-term and you want to leverage that noise or, or leverage the swings, 
then a daily MACD might be more appropriate. So it, that's really more of the personal preference. And um, I think with any indicator, the more you use it, the more you get to know it in terms of those uh, nuances. So I always tell people, you know, just just choose your, your indicators that kind of resonate with you and then continue watching the same indicators with the same parameters um, rather than trying to go back and I guess backfit the data or backfit the parameters so it looks the best. Just use the same parameters across the board um, and choose ones that suit your trading style. Um, and for the MACD, I'm just using the standard parameters, but I know a lot of people that are tweaking it because it's there may be a little bit more short term in their orientation, want something that's more sensitive, that type of thing. Uh, but I think it's great if I you know, had only one indicator that I could choose, it, it would be that. But the real value comes in when we combine the indicators, as mentioned. So we want to take that MACD and we want to enhance it with other indicators like our cloud model. And we also like to use the overbought or sold measures in conjunction with the MACDs because they'll tell us, okay, well, you know, the MACD seems to be sort of rolling over a little bit. And then we say get an overbought sell signal that would uh, taken together be a more powerful sort of takeaway than just one or the other. Right. So the MACD is the bottom part of this chart that we're showing on the screen, the very bottom, uh, where it has the red line and the blue line and then the bars, which I think is the, the difference between them. So which line is the red line, the signal line, and what's the blue line? And, and what does the spread uh, indicate? And also, could you just repeat for me as well as for our audience, just uh, what is a, a buy reading and what's a sell reading? Yeah, so the, uh, the data line is in blue, and you can tell it's the data line because it's a bit more wiggly, <laughs> uh, so a little bit closer to price and less smooth. So it's when the blue line crosses above the red line uh, that you have a buy signal and vice versa. So you can see in the chart there that we have a sell signal. And then what we take as, uh, I would call it like a data visualization tool, is the spread between those two moving averages or data line and moving average of it. And we get the histogram that sort of um, moves around the zero mark. And that histogram will, will show you when the two lines that comprise the MACD are either converging or diverging. And it gives you a sense is, okay, well, it still has upside momentum, still above zero in the histogram, but that histogram has been coming down. And that would give you a sense that momentum's falling off, but it's not yet on a sell signal. And some people might want to react uh, a bit earlier to that, right? And not wait for the sell signal. We usually wait for sell signals or buy signals. Um, and we do that because we want to really make sure we're capturing major shifts. Uh, but, but it's all a matter of preference on that front too. Right. So when the blue line is below the red line, that is a sell signal. And that is captured by the histogram bars, which is below zero. That's right. You can see it in the histogram too. Right. Okay. So what is the most bearish sentiment? Uh, it, it, first of all, is it, I guess, um, linear where the bigger, the, the, the lower the histogram bars are, the more bearish that is, or is a negative, you know, one reading just as bearish as a negative 60 reading? And also what does the, um, you know, the presence of the actual lines above uh, zero or below zero mean? Is it more bearish if the lines are below zero and the histogram is negative? Or is it is it more bearish if the both lines are above zero, but the histogram is negative? Yeah, yeah. So I, I would think of it like back to that nuance of saying when the MACDs themselves are pointing higher on a buy signal, 
and yet they're below zero. I consider that to be improving, but not yet positive. It's when they cross over zero that it turns into positive momentum. It's not really an oscillator like a stochastic oscillator is. Uh, so it's not going to necessarily mean revert with any reliability. Um, so it, to say go up to like a hundred reading or something doesn't mean anything. Um, it, it's a trending gauge in and of itself. Um, but that that sort of histogram is a little bit different, right? So it presents it in a different fashion. And I think you tuned into the fact that when it has a, sort of a surge in that histogram, one way or the other, it does reflect a greater surge in momentum one way or the other. And you can actually see some divergences at times in the histogram relative to history. So you can say, well, okay, now we have this big surge in downside momentum underway. Let's see how that compares to the summertime relief rally and it, it wouldn't mature. So we can get some neat sort of takeaways from that by just comparing the current action in the MACD to history. And um, like I said, we, we always combine it with other tools. So some of the nuances like our takeaways uh, will actually come from other indicators. So we'll have a MACD that has a binary takeaway, but then we'll say, okay, but you know, we've had this MACD signal for X duration and that MACD signal looks like it probably will tire out because one, this is what happened last time, or two, we have an overbought signal um, that, that's unfolding elsewhere. So it's really in how we, we can kind of inform our bias using other tools too. Right. Okay. Um, so Katie, this is a tough question, but if I were to ask you, like, let's say on a, a one month time horizon, a three month, a six month and a 12 month, you can answer all of them or pick a particular one. What would you say your technical outlook is on the S&P 500? And I'll give you an options. Uh, very bullish, bullish, <laughs> somewhat bullish, neutral, somewhat bearish, bearish, very bearish. Okay. <laughs> this is a tough exercise, right? And, and I have to, uh, you know, sort of be forthcoming in that I'm not ultra predictive in my research, but rather... Uh, you know, where we can all have an edge as technical analysts is in the current sort of setup, right? We, we, we know how we feel about the market right now. Six months from now, that could change. Um, and it probably will change. I actually hope it will change because I'm, I'm pretty bearish right now. Okay, so you're pretty bearish, but that's on, that's on a shorter term time horizon. Yeah, so several weeks or so, um, I would say. Um, I don't know what your your gradations were, but um, yeah, pretty pretty bearish over that sort of near term time frame, with the thought that we'll see maybe some firmness here for the balance of the month, give way to a big downdraft in January. Which indicator is the the most uh, bearish for for you? Um, it's it, well. That, that's a hard question too. With, without you know intending to be, I think it's it's the combination of the fact that we have monthly MACDs pointing lower, meaning that the long term downside momentum is still very much an issue for the major indices. But then also within that context, we have the stochastic oscillator on the weekly charts having rolled over from overbought territory, and that's a pretty difficult setup. When you see an overbought reading in a bear market, well, that tends to be pretty high probability as a selling opportunity and vice versa, right? We talked about in a long-term uptrend where you have an oversold indication. We have the reverse of that right now. And that's what gives me some conviction in the fact that we'll see another down leg. We don't have a crystal ball, so we don't know what happens on the back of that, but, but we would suspect based on how strong that 3,200 support level is that perhaps that becomes 
are kind of, you know, a major low for the S&P 500. And, you know, being somewhat hopeful, we'd like to see that that give way to some kind of bottoming process, meaning those series of retests of support. Okay, thank you. Uh, let's let's now pivot to uh, away from stocks into crude oil, uh, which absolutely exploded higher as as high as one hundred and twenty dollars uh, in late spring, early summer. But since then, has been uh, trading pretty weak. Uh, and I know the seasonality. This is December is a very weak period for oil, uh, at least the first half of December. Um, what? Yeah. So now we're, now we're looking at your chart of oil. Uh, what are the indicators you look at? Do you sort of analyze oil in a different way than stocks, or do you analyze it? Hey, it's an asset class. I'm going to analyze it. I have my framework. You know, we, we apply it to every single asset class. I mean, um, we, yeah, we use the same methodology for all asset classes, and we try to look at them individually first, at least, right? Because we're trying to be very unbiased in the way we're we're analyzing things. In fact, I'll look at the you know dollar index and I'll look at treasury yields and I look at crude oil and gold, all things that hold a lot of importance and information uh, from a macro perspective. But I try to really just look at them in pure price trend terms. And then ideally we can reconcile that with with our beliefs and uh, you know more from an intermarket perspective. Um, so in our research report, which you have open there, we will change the time frame on the charts that we show just to one mix it up, but to to frame the conversation that we're having that week, whatever's most interesting or most timely or informational. And for crude oil, we we showed this past week a monthly bar chart because we wanted to have that long term context to frame uh, the downside volatility that we'd seen. And of course, we've seen a downtrend for several months now in crude oil. And it, it has uh, brought it right into some support of roughly $70 per barrel. And with that downtrend, uh, you know, it's within the context of a broader uptrend. And you can see how momentum has shifted per the monthly MACD. So it went from, you know, having the support of the monthly MACD to then flashing a MACD sell signal. Now it can be considered or considered um, sort of a deteriorating momentum situation. Uh, but the support that we highlight is very strong. And now we have uh, an oversold reading on a long-term basis to perhaps allow that support to hold. Our takeaway has been, and this has been for, for more than a few months, that crude oil, the uptrend was giving way to a long-term trading range that is apparently quite wide. Um, and that trading range is, is going to make it a little bit more challenging for the energy sector in particular. Um, and it could just be a trading range that lasts a year or two and then gives way to an, another sort of up leg for crude oil. But we don't, we don't have that visibility from it. Rather, what we need to do is respect the loss of, of upside momentum, but also just keep an eye on the key levels. Um, this chart is really kind of interesting because it has on it a DeMarc sell signal. So DeMarc sell signals are counter-trend in nature. It's the 13 that you see hovering above the peak. 
uh, Tom DeMarc actually developed these indicators that are designed to gauge trend exhaustion. So they fall into the overbought or sold category and uh, they, they're automated. So it's, it's almost like if I see it, it's there and I, it, it's, I can't argue against it. It's another sort of uh, binary takeaway. Does it have a sell signal or not? Um, and crude oil did have a very um, sort of pressing higher conviction sell signal right around its high. And that sell signal has essentially run its course, um, but now we'll be watching for something to unfold based on those same indicators on the downside, which we don't have quite yet. Right. And so you said energy sector could be challenged because the trading range for oil, and we're looking at WTI, the American version, Western Texas Intermediate Crude, uh, the trading range is quite wide. How, what, what is that range roughly? You know, because if the range was between $60 and $120, there are a lot of oil companies that can make a lot of money. Some of them, you know, need oil at $100, but, you know, some of them don't. Yeah, so we really don't have the range yet, right? We're, we're thinking that the bottom boundary of the range is probably around 70 based on that former peak, that former resistance area. It, one of the concepts behind support and resistance is that a former resistance area will often become support. And that's based on market psychology. So think about the folks that sort of missed that up move that which accelerated through 70 and then uh, they kind of were kicking themselves until it came back into 70 right and said okay well i missed that breakout here it is back at that breakout level so i'm gonna um, pick up exposure here so that there and becomes support that that's oversimplifying it but but that's one of the concepts behind those levels kind of switching and so we have 70 support. It's um, a level that might make sense from a, a macro fundamental perspective. I don't know. Um, but then on the upside, the long-term resistance is something close to 120. Uh, but that doesn't mean that's really the upper boundary for WTI crude oil. We, we think it's probably somewhere in the mid-90s based on an interim level. Um, but it's really not been established yet. So we, we don't have that guidance in terms of what the strong resistance is defining the upper boundary of the range. But we certainly know that that 120 area is an issue. Mm. So uh, it seems like a lot of the signals are, are saying different things. Uh, how do you draw a conclusion when you know the signals are one saying it's raining, the other says it's, it's sunny? Um, yeah, are, are, you, are you bullish, bearish or neutral in the short term? Yeah, so we're we're more neutral to positive in the short term because of the proximity of support and because of the long-term oversold reading and for the fact that downside momentum is not too bad on a short-term basis. So we have sort of a combination of things across multiple timeframes that are contributing to that bias. So we, we are trusting that support will hold for now and give way to a relief rally for crude oil. Mm, all right. Um Katie, if I had to ask you what your highest conviction view would be across all assets, you know, Bitcoin, stocks, emerging markets, bonds, treasury yields, commodities, what would you say that asset class is? Oh, my gosh, I never play favorites. I have to say, Jack, and this is not me trying to skirt a question, but if you think about it, a technical analyst, um, you know, we're price based in our analysis and we're in such an like a top down oriented environment where the correlations are really high in, in certain areas of the markets. Um, so, so it's almost like if you're making a comment on one asset class, you're also making a comment on, on others. So it's more like, do we have conviction in our views right now? We do, and there's definitely times that, that we don't, right? And usually those times are more characterized by ranges because ranges can 
be really frustrating. <laughs> um, but we don't really play favorites. We can't even play favorites from a bottom-up perspective. So when we scan the S&P 500, you know, I'll come up with a dozen plus names that look equally good or equally bad. So we just, it's really hard as technicians to differentiate unless we're getting into relative strength and relative performance. Um, so if we're looking for, you know, the best positioned asset class for outperformance versus mm -hmm. equities, I would say that's probably precious metals, gold, um, sort of a safe haven asset class, as you well know, but just that's based in part on the ratios, our relative strength analysis, and also the way it sets up on a long-term basis is having reacted to a long-term oversold condition and just looking different than the equity market. Um, and then otherwise, you know, we, we do have conviction and just prevailing trends, right? We, we believe the dollar index to be in an uptrend. We believe the treasury yields to be in an uptrend, um, you know, and, and having seen corrective phases within, uh, we believe also that those uptrends are, are probably not going to be as steep this coming year as they were uh, this past year. So uh, we have a lot of takeaways of which I'd say we probably are, are fairly convicted in collectively, um, but it's not like one thing jumps out as being the highest conviction. Right. All right. Well, I won't ask you to, to play favorites. By the way, when I, I asked the question, I, I was hoping that you would say treasury yields just because you know we spoke recently and I know your, your view on, on treasuries uh, remains quite bearish, meaning you know, yields to go higher. And I, I feel like you've been very right in that view uh, this whole year. But many, and I'm starting to you know, explore this view myself, think that with the economy slowing down, treasury yields might have peaked. I know, and your view, I, as I believe, is different than that. So I, I would love to explore that. However, because you mentioned gold, I, I got to ask you about it. So we're showing uh, the monthly chart of gold now. Gold had a, you know, a ridiculous rally uh, shortly after COVID, and then it pretty much disappointed everybody and has, has traded very weak. I mean, uh, when the war broke out, Russia invaded Ukraine, gold, gold had a little bit of a bounce. Um, but yeah, it's been trading weak, but now it's rallying a little bit over the past month. Um, you said you're bullish in terms of you know outperf outperform things to outperform stocks um why and yeah feel free to take take yeah, whatever it's indicator really, it's, it's based on not what you're seeing on the chart but i guess in part what you're seeing there that which would be sort of the absolute perspective on the price of gold and how it has very strong support defined by that monthly cloud that you see and even on a short-term basis there's good support as well reacting to an oversold condition in a trading range environment tends to be a pretty high probability setup so we do think that there's upside potential intermediate and, and long-term for gold, uh, but the ratio is what intrigues us. We have the ratio of gold to the S&P 500 trending higher based on the 200-day moving average in part, and that ratio is something that, that suggests that we'll get more outperformance there. So in a market that's really not lending us a whole lot of uptrends to take advantage of, which we much prefer, um, you know, we're working with what we're given, right? You know, in terms of sort of U.S. exposure, uh, we're comfortable with gold as a place to hide until uh, the equity market lends itself to a more of an uptrending environment. Um, so, so that's that's an area that we are certainly focused on. Uh, we have an ETF. It's called the Fairlead Tactical Sector ETF or TACK, and that ETF has about a 22% position in gold via GLD and other ETF. And um, it's very risk off in its exposure. It has gold, it also has treasury exposure. So even though we 
believe that treasury yields have had a secular shift. We think that they will work higher and work higher over decades, perhaps, based on the, the trend that has been reversed there over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, at the same time, treasuries are still poised to outperform equities. Um, so it, it's really just an unusual environment in that we had this treasury bear market um, that really surprised a lot of people, I think, at, around the start of this year, perhaps. Uh, but but to me, they still are poised to outperform and act as a, a safer haven than equities. So despite the fact that I think yields will move higher, um, that, that's still the case in relative strength terms. Now, uh, for 10-year yields, we have an uptrend. I don't think anybody could argue with that. Uh, within that context, um, intermediate term momentum is to the downside still, but we're getting somewhat oversold in this corrective phase. So we're looking for the uptrend to resume within the coming weeks. Um, and that next resistance for tenure yields is around five and a quarter. And I know that feels very far away from here. But if you look at the history and the trend and sort of its trajectory, it's a level that could be relevant in 2023. Um, so we're not we're not positioned for that right now. Um, but as it stands, you know, the, the trend is still very much higher, and that is the next major resistance. Uh, with the secular shift that, that we've seen, I mean, you can see a year or two years of a counter trend move, but that counter trend move to the downside doesn't appear imminent to us. Um, and the dollar index, we've seen a bit more of a loss of long term upside momentum. That's not yet shared by 10 year Treasury yields. So it's something that we're watching, but we just don't have yet. Right. Okay. So your, yeah, your uh, longer term bearish view on on treasuries saw yield above five percent, and that is you know that th the pain in the bond trade would be quite extreme. I think in the ten year treasury, people have lost from top to bottom something like twenty five percent, which in you know a credit you know a, an instrument that has no credit risk is 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 pretty remarkable. And if it goes to above five percent, and you said five and a quarter. Is what you said? Five and a quarter. Mm -hmm. Five and a quarter. Yeah. Well, that will be that will be something to watch. Uh, Definitely, it's a lot will be going on if, if Treasury yields get get to there. Um, okay, so yeah, you, you quickly mentioned the dollar. So you said, yeah, huge bull market that ended somewhere in October. Um, sorry, can you re repeat your view again? And yeah, oh yeah, I wouldn't say it ended. I mean, it, it's it's gave way to a correction. Um, so so yeah, that right. doesn't mean necessarily that the trend has reversed, but we definitely have had a pretty massive counter trend move. Really, the first one over the last couple of years. Uh, but you can see that the cloud on the weekly chart is still pointing higher. Uh, we've seen a downtick in long-term momentum that's impacted the monthly stochastics, but not yet a monthly MACD cell signal. So, so it's a loss of upside momentum, and it's not as significant as what you just saw before in crude oil. Um, so we're just keeping an eye on it, but we're, we're going to trust here that we'll see a relief rally for the dollar index fairly soon. And that's based on oversold indications. And then we would look perhaps for that relief rally to give way to a lower high. And uh, and yeah, we can't think two steps ahead. So uh, for now, we're just going to say that there is limited downside apparently for it based on the way it sets up. Uh, there's some support around 103. Right. All right. So you've you done some really interesting sector work on the uh, S&P 500, so like financials, healthcare, energy, and you're overweight some and underweight others. Uh, I want to ask, you know, for the ones you're underweight, what is it about it? And for the ones you're underweight, uh, why? Um, I can choose some or I don't know, any that are particularly interesting, interesting to you. 
Well, I, I think there's a few takeaways here, and we do, as as you can see, place a lot of weight on sector rotation and relative strength. It is the basis for our ETF. We think it's like the lowest hanging fruit in terms of being able to outperform the S&P 500 is, is by choosing the right sectors and obviously avoiding the ones that are underperforming. And any given year, you see massive spreads in relative performance on the sector front. So what you're showing here on the charts are, are price charts of the various sub or sector indices within the S&P 500, and then their ratios against the S&P 500 in the bottom windows. And we're doing very simple um, trending, like trend following analysis on those ratios. The ratios, if you think about it, are already one derivative away from price. And, and if we were to throw in a MACD or something on that ratio, well, then we're getting a little bit farther away from the, the data itself. So we like to keep it really simple looking at ratios. We'll have some of our overbought, oversold measures like the DeMarc indicators working behind the scenes here. But really, very simply, we want to be on the right side of the prevailing uh, trends over the past several months. And you can see tech has been in a downtrend. You can see that based on the 40-week moving average picture there, which is sort of a rough gauge of the 200-day moving average. It's not as simple as referencing that 200-day or 40-week moving average, but um, certainly does give some information as to what the prevailing trends are. And any, any of the charts bordered in green, you'll see our, our overweight uh, sort of recommended weightings. And those generally are in uptrends versus the S&P 500. And then you can really understand, okay, are we on offense or defense here? I mean, the, the sectors that we have rated overweight right now are pretty highly defensive. So consumer staples for one, utilities, of course, healthcare, and then energy as, as a bit of an aside there. Right. All right. Interesting. I want to zoom into this uh, sector rotation S&P uh, 500. Yeah, what are we looking at here? What are the quadrants between weakening, weakening lagging, improving, and, and leading? And so we call it an RRG, and it's a really cool like data visualization tool where it takes the relative strength ratios for the various sector indices like you've seen visually already, and it normalizes them to the benchmark being the S&P 500. The view that we show in our weekly report is like ultra short term, but we do that intentionally. We're only looking at the past week of trading. Um, we do it intentionally to see if there's any kind of shift underway from offense to defense, because that can help us. Uh, it, it'll either bolster our market views or otherwise. So we, we let that inform us on sort of the uh, market sentiment front. Um, but the when it's pointing up into the right, a ticker with the trailing history behind it, that means it's outperformed with growing momentum and vice versa. Um, but the five-day view that you see there, it is um, sort of fast moving, right? Because it's moving every single day. We, we also like to look at that on a six-month basis to get a sense of what the prevailing trends are. And there you would see something that's pretty well aligned with what we have in those uh, sort of recommended weightings. So you'll see a healthcare uh, sector index pointing up and to the right in the leading quadrant, that type of thing. And you, you assume that this RRG will make a clockwise rotation and therein you can visualize the sector rotation that we all know is inherent to the market. Mm. Thank you. Uh, Katie, one of my final questions for you is, what are some of the most common mistakes you think people use, investors use, when they are uh, employing technical analysis? 
I, I think really primarily it's not doing it systematically. So I think it's consuming too much information or sporadic information and not going back to the same tools or the same methodology, um, it, you know, repeatedly, because I think that's where the, the value truly is. And that's why we, we have a systematic approach in our own research and with our, our ETF, because we believe that that's the way to invest using technical analysis. Um, so, so that's how we, we see it. We also think that it's a matter of really getting used to identifying these key levels and then letting the charts, I guess, enhance what you're seeing everywhere else, right? To help you understand sort of the market reaction to either macro data, fundamental data, and to be able to reconcile, that's where you can get the uh, really sort of the most benefit from using the charts and using the indicators. And, and it's not easy, right? It's, it requires time and, and energy, and yet technical analysis as a discipline is something uh, that has become super popular, and not just because of a bear market cycle and, and its ability to manage risk, but because I think sort of there's a younger set out there that the visual elements are appealing to them and, and the fact that they can access these charts without having to know the management of a company or, you know, to dig into, you know, 13F filings and balance sheets and it's a little bit more accessible in that way. So I think it's gained popularity for that reason and that it's one of these tools that, um, you know, there's so much available to us, but to to really use it effectively would be to use it regularly and uh, to go back to those same tools. Right. So I've uh, used, uh, to the extent that I've used technical analysis, uh, you use like moving averages, but I pay particular attention to the RSI 12 days. Yeah, what would you say... Uh, how useful do you think an RSI is, which is uh, gives overbought, oversold, but it, you know, I think a much more vanilla version than what you use. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I consider an RSI, which stands for Relative Strength Index, to be an overbought, oversold measure, as you mentioned. And uh, I have a stochastic oscillator that's going to ideally give me a similar or the same takeaway. So, what I ever I, I tell my clients to say, well, an RSI is great. Um, if that's what you're accustomed to, um, but you don't need both, right? So, so it brings up the point that you don't want to duplicate your uh, sort of uh, the things that you're taking away from the indicators, right? So if you have multiple ways to gauge if something's overbought or oversold, then you can let your confirmation bias get in the way there, right? So it's more just like, okay, you've got the RSI, it's a 12 period, you're accustomed to that. Great, that's what I would use, but I wouldn't use a bunch of other stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so I know what you mean. Uh, I, I was just nodding my head when you said confirmation bias because there's always going to be a technical indicator that will give you the reading that you want that confirms your yeah. bias. And if it <laughs> or, doesn't, you can say, oh, instead of, instead of the, the 50 week cor- uh, 50 day moving average, I'm going to do the 63 day moving average. And th- that's a bullish reading. So I think it is important to be uh, systematic, uh, as you said. Well, Katie, it's been fantastic uh, getting a chance to hear your analysis of what the charts are indicating. Uh, people can find you on Twitter at uh, Stockton Katie. Where can they find out more information about Fairlead Strategies? Yeah, thanks, Jack. It's, so we have a website, fairleadstrategies.com. And on that website, we'll have some you know, articles, media exposure, things that you can try to track our views. 
Yeah, but we would also recommend a trial of our service. We have research. We're publishing a couple times a day, typically uh, sort of becoming a, an outsourced technical analyst for folks that don't have the time to do it themselves. Um, and those trials usually give way to subscriptions, which um, people value just for that kind of systematic approach. And then also for the, the fund, the ETF, which is T-A-C-K or TAC, there is another website called fairleadfunds.com and all the information is on there, very transparent. Hmm. Katie, thanks so much. Of course, Jack. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> 